chapter 3 today. I encourage you to turn there. That song has, you know, there's a, there was a list years ago of awkward hymn uh, lines. And that one had one of them. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. Period. Of course, that's not the end of it. Another one was, uh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. You need the rest of that. Amen? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. But we're talking this morning in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we're continuing in our series on um, Behold, He Comes. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians deals with the second coming. We're going to see that today. And in chapter 3, Paul deals with just the affection and care that he has for these converts in, um, in Thessalonica. And uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter today. It's 13 verses. And we're going to start there in verse 1 where, where he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Let's look at a map and reacquaint ourselves with what's going on. Paul had come on his second missionary journey up to Troas. He had tried to go up into Asia, but the Bible says the Holy Spirit had prevented him. And then he had that vision over there in Acts chapter 17 of the Macedonian saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so took that vision as an indication from God they were supposed to go into, uh, into Greece area. And they went to Philippi. And when they got there, Lydia was converted, you'll recall, the first convert in Europe. And everything's going great. They preach the gospel in Philippi and everything's going great. And then they got arrested and beat up and thrown in jail. Well, that'll ruin your whole day. Cable was out. They didn't know what to do. And so finally released from Philippi, they went through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, preached the gospel there. And there were some people who believed, but the Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that, that the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. They came after Paul, and they had to leave town. So they went down to, let's go back to our map, they went down to Berea, which is over here. They accepted the gospel there. They preached the gospel. The Bereans accepted it. They were more noble, it says, than the ones in Thessalonica because they went home on Sunday afternoons to go home and read their own Bible and see if that's what it actually said. And it is. But when the Thessalonians heard about that, those guys up there, they sent... They sent some of their hell's angels people and they had a few crypts and a couple of bloods in there and go whoop up on the side of Paul's head. And so the brothers picked him up there at Berea and they escorted him, it says, all the way down to Athens. But Paul had left Silas and Timothy up in Berea. When they got settled down in Athens, it says that he sent for them, said, come on down here, everything's fine down to Athens. And so they came down there. Paul had a good ministry in Athens. He went there to philosophize with the philosophers. They had come from all over the world because Athens was a place where they loved to philosophy. Philo means love and Sophia means wisdom. And so they would sit around and talk about how much they loved wisdom together. And Paul, we have recorded one of his best sermons from Athens. It's on cassette tapes. They didn't have CDs back then. So you'll have to get it on a cassette tape. But um, actually, it's... Sorry. Acts 17. That's so stupid, it's overwhelming. But anyway, um, Acts 17, we have one of his great sermons there. And when everything got calmed down in Athens, look back there in verse 1. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, 
and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy, let's go back to our map. He had met Timothy in the town of Lystra, back over here, modern-day Turkey area. And Timothy said, I want to join the traveling band. And so Paul said, okay. Timothy was probably a teenager. Picked him up, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't brought on and build as the new, hip, cool preacher. He was the, he was the slob loading the van. Paul, uh, Timothy, was he, he carried Paul's suitcase. That's how he learned ministry. That's how they learned ministry back in the day. They traveled with someone who was doing, and they learned how to do it from someone who was doing, and it had obviously had the blessing of God on their life. So he traveled with Paul and just served him. Paul had upwards of 20 young men over the years who followed him in ministry. 20 men that he just trained them by doing, by giving them example and then turning them loose to doing it. That was their ministry education. They would travel with Paul. They'd get beat up. They'd get thrown in jail. They'd get laughed at, loved on, ministered to, ministered through. And every now and then, whenever they could, they'd preach the gospel. And that's how they learned what it meant to be a minister of God. And in all of his writings, Paul talks about these guys. He calls them, he says, they're my fellow helpers, fellow laborers, fellow servants, fellow soldiers, fellow workers, fellow prisoners. Everything they did, they did together. One of those companions was Luke. As you read the book of Acts, look for the we, us passages. First person plural. Luke traveled with Paul and anytime they were doing something together, he puts it in we, us. And then there are times he wasn't there and he says they, them. Our passage today is a we, us passage. Verse 1, we were willing to be left behind at Athens. Luke was one of those who had traveled with him. and He carried them with him in his travels because he believed in team ministry. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul believed in team ministry. And when it says that he sent Timothy up to Thessalonica to check on him, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. I'm sending one of my beloved, trusted companions up to check on you. That's a really big deal. And look at, look at how much, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he tells us how much he believes in team ministry. He gives us another example of what happened there in Troas when he had the, the vision of the Macedonians saying, come over and help us. He expounds on that a little bit more there in verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. He had an opportunity to preach, had the meetings all lined up, everything's taken care of. They had after dinner, you know, after, after service dinner set up, everything was lined out. But he couldn't find his brother Titus. There's no rest in his spirit. So what does he do? Look there in verse 13. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Friends, when there wasn't team ministry, Paul left. He believed in team ministry. So when he sent Timothy back up to Thessalonica, that is a really big deal. And you look at those nearly 20 people who traveled with Paul over the years, you think, well, somebody's going to stick. You know, there'll be somebody that sticks with him all the way to the end, and they'll be at the foot of his bed when he dies that last time. But that's not how it worked out. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. 2 Timothy 4, At my first defense, no one came to stand with me. All have deserted me. Uh, he's a little bit depressed there, but he is quick to add in 4.11, 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke is with me. He has Timothy over there preaching in Ephesus, and he still has Luke with him. But what about all those others? What about Demas? Been with him for years. 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Gone back to the very place where they hated Paul the most. Boy, I bet that was depressing. 
And I wonder why he went back to Thessalonica. I wonder if you remember the lights and the excitement and the strip. I wonder if there was a Caesar's Palace in Thessalonica. <laughs> Vance Habner said it might, the, the, the answer that might be found in the fact that his name means popular. And he chose popularity with the world more than popularity with Jesus. And I wonder how easy it would have been for Paul to wonder if he was the common denominator in all those broken relationships. But if we look at our passage here in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That is a really big deal, not only because Paul hated being alone, but also because of the depth of relationship he was building with Timothy. And say In Philippians 2, here's what he says about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. First Timothy says, you are my true son in the faith. So Paul's... Paul is doing a, a, a great sacrifice for himself in sending Timothy. And he loved Timothy so much, if you knew you were about to die, who would be the, who would be the person that you would want to communicate with last? That's who Paul wrote his last letter to. In 2 Timothy, it's the last letter we have from Paul. We're going to be studying 2 Timothy at the beginning of next year. If you want to start getting ahead on some of the homework, you can start reading 2 Timothy now. But that's who he wanted to communicate with when he was on his way out. And this is who... Paul sent back up to Thessalonica, this beloved, trusted, traveling gospel companion. And he did it for these two reasons. Look there in verse 2. To establish and exhort you in your faith. He wanted him to do two things. First off, establish him in the faith. Teach them the rudiments of the faith. You can't walk in your faith if you don't know your faith. And Paul said, I want you to go up there and teach them the word. You establish them, you ground them in the faith. Teach them what the Bible has to say. And friends, it is important that we know what the Bible has to say. Amen? It is important that we involve ourselves in Bible study, personal Bible study, corporate Bible study, any way that God will get it into us. We've got to know the Word. That's the first thing that Paul tells him to do. But the second thing he tells him to do is exhort them in their faith. Exhort you. Encourage them to live that faith. It's great for you to know your faith, but to give your faith practical application and expression is the completion of the gospel. If we know all about the gospel but we don't live it, we're not, we're, we, haven't, we haven't given them the whole package here. And so Paul says, I want you to teach it to them. I want you to challenge them to live it. And that is the work of ministry, friends. To not only teach people the Bible, but to encourage them and challenge them, exhort them to live that thing out. Because it doesn't matter how many scriptures you can quote on Sunday morning. You can sound like an angel on Sunday morning. But if you sound like a devil at the house on Tuesday afternoon, your, your, your faith is not complete. So Paul says, I'm sending Timothy up there to establish you in your faith and to exhort you to live your faith also. Now, look in verse 3. Why did Paul want them established and exhorted? Verse 3, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. You'll remember that Paul knew exactly about the afflictions in Thessalonica. He had been thoroughly beat up on there. They did not like Paul there. And he did not want these new converts at Thessalonica discouraged and distracted from the gospel by the afflictions that would come to him. After everything that had been done, he did not want them to fall away because of these afflictions. He did it in verse 3. 
So no one is moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And friends, there's you a message we don't hear much about in the American church. The fact that suffering, difficulty, distress are a very real part of the Christian walk. Now, in this state, we see a little bit more of it than we do in Alabama, <laughs> Mississippi. I mean, I, you've walked on the mud there. You'll know why they call it Mississippi. Anyway, how many of you have had difficulty at work because you stood up and said, I'm a Christian? How many of you have known someone who have lost a job because they stood up and said, no, I'm going to follow Christ now? Affliction is a part of it. And for us in America to think that we're exempt from it because, you know, well, Jesus just loves us a little bit more. And if he had loved those people in those other countries a little bit more, he would have had them born in America. That is, that is egotism beyond, beyond compare. To think that, that, to think that there is no affliction in life today in the world in following Christ today because we're not experiencing very much in America is naivety of a, of a gross order. Because, friend, persecution still occurs in our world today. And many of us can look at just the difficulties of life and look at that and say, well, I'm a Christian, I deserve better. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, because we've all cracked ourselves up with that one. I deserve so much better than this. Really? What makes us think so? You know, over the years I've read more than a couple of books. Read, we have boxes and boxes of books. I've only read one book three times. It's a little book by Philip Yancey named, entitled Disappointment with God. And he deals with, why do these rotten things have to happen to me? Why is my kid the hard one to deal with? Why is my health having difficulty? Why is my job so much less exciting than other people's jobs? I wish I could have had their spouse. Disappointment with God. God, why is it hard for me? And he says an interesting thing in one of his writings. He said, what if as Christians we were just to act like sponges to absorb evil from the world so that those who don't know Jesus wouldn't have to wrestle through the evil to get to him? Well, there's your stinky thought. But what if? And we look, at, we look at God and say, we deserve so much better than this. Why? You know, Leonard Ravenhill back in the day said, said it's a testimony to the, how shallow the American Christian is to think that we're going to be raptured out of this whole thing before anything difficult happens. When Russian Christians and Chinese Christians were being slaughtered, buried in shallow graves for the dogs to dig up and eat, and we have everything okay and we're going to be raptured out of here before anything bad happens. What kind of egotism is that? Well, if it doesn't happen to us, then maybe it just doesn't happen. Well, there's you an ostrich with its head in the sand. And we forget about those 16 Ethiopian Christians who just this past May, just a few months ago, had their heads cut off because they refused to renounce Christ. That was this May. In Ethiopia. Or oh, we forget about the thousands on the continent of Africa who every year are slaughtered because they refuse to renounce Christ. There's one country in Africa that was putting Christians into kind of like um, railroad cars and putting them out in the middle of the desert to let them broil to death slowly. For no reason other than because they're Christians. And Paul says, I know these things are going to happen. I want you to be prepared for this kind of thing. Friends, it is still going on today. And for us to have our head in the sand and think everything is wonderful, we are still called in Hebrews chapter 13 to remember those who are in prison. 
As though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We have a responsibility to remember those folks and to pray for them. If you're interested in that kind of thing, if you'd like to know more about that kind of ministry, there's a great organization called Voice of the Martyrs that follows the martyrs that are following Jesus to death even today. But Paul, recognizing the need for encouragement, the need for stability and strength in their Christian walk, and knew what those people were facing up in Thessalonica, he sent his beloved Timothy back up there to make sure they were prepared for what was coming. So back in 1 Thessalonians 3, look there in verse 4. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Friends, persecution for following Jesus is part and parcel to being a Christian. And Jesus never soft-sold the gospel. He never kept, kept the difficult parts away from him. He's the one who looked at him and said, if you're going to come to me, you're going to have to take up your cross every day and follow me. And friends, it wasn't a pretty piece of jewelry that would hang around our neck, as wonderful as they are. It was the means of execution, and they knew it. You're going to have to be willing to die to yourself every day. It's going to cost you everything you have. You've got to be willing to turn your back on your mom and your daddy, your sisters and your brother, all your, everybody, to follow me. And he never soft-sold the gospel. Listen to what he said in John 15. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I want to be liked, don't you? Mark 13, be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. But there's a purpose for it. It is to bear witness before them. And friends, the New Testament writers didn't slack off on it either. They didn't soft sell it. There will be difficulty in following Christ. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his name's sake. And that's a message we don't hear much of in America. We have been greatly spared from it. And if you were told that if you'll come to Jesus, then all of your problems will be fixed, all of your problems will be taken away. If you'll just come to Jesus, everything will be made right. I am sorry you were so thoroughly lied to. About how long did it take you to get past that one? First 15 seconds? Christianity is not a promise of the removal of promises, problems. It is a promise of purpose in problems. You can look at the difficulty that you're going through as having a purpose if you choose to. Or we can sit back and whine about it just like we did before we knew Jesus. But there can be purpose in difficulty. Listen to what he said in Romans 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, it ends with the Holy Spirit and it begins with suffering. There is a purpose in our difficulties if we will bring them to Jesus and say, listen, I just want to be made to look more like Jesus. Use this. Use this. And use it quick. <laughs> Get me out of this thing. <laughs> I want patience and I want it now, bless God. <laughs> suffering produces endurance. 
And if we will allow God to use our difficulties, we will experience real life transformation. That's the purpose of it. God in everything that you do. And Paul, you know, all those that had abandoned him there at the end, it meant so much when he said, 2 Timothy 4, 17, they've all left. Demas is gone. They've all abandoned me. Nobody in Asia. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So here's Paul down there in Athens. He's in relative comfort now. The beatings in uh, Thessalonica of his friends and the difficulty in Berea, they're over. They've gotten him down to Athens. They put him into a comfort inn and they have a warm continental breakfast for the next morning and um, everything's good there. He's having his intellectual conversations. And so he decides to send some folks back up to Thessalonica to check on them. Look there in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He just had to know how these people were doing. He just loved them so much. He missed them. He wanted to be with them. And he didn't want to have wasted his time, wasted his labor there. And you know, all of us have seen... All of us have seen folks who just keep asking the same question. They never hear the answer. When we, we pastored a church for a little over five years, and when we first got there, there was somebody in the church and said, I have a question for you. Well, I was 22, so I knew everything. So I answered their question for them. And um, I gave them this great philosophical, theological, biblical-based answer. And um, so all the problems were fixed, right? Five years later, we're about to leave the church. They come walking up to me, and they say, hey, I have a question for you. Would you like to guess what their question was? The exact same question. Okay, well, I'll try. You know, <laughs> by that time I wasn't quite as smart. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> no, I tried to work with them. How many of us just don't get it? How many of us keep keep taking the test over and over, and we just don't seem to get it? Somebody said you'll take the test until you pass it. Bill Stafford said, if we need one more trip around the mountain, God's glad to take us around the mountain one more time. But friends, how, how wonderful it is to hear the Word, to allow it to, to take root in our lives, to change us and say, good, let's get on to the next lesson here. Let's quit whining about how difficult it is and learn what we need to learn so we can get on to the next one. Jesus is talking in Mark chapter 4. I love that parable about the sower who went forth to sow. And there are four kinds of soil there. You know the first one? It says the, as he was sowing, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and devoured it. And that's what Paul's concerned about here in Thessalonica. That we've thrown out the word, but we don't want it to land on a hard place. We don't want difficulty to come in. We don't want the birds to come in and steal it. God, we want that seed to take root in people's lives and change them from the inside out. Someone said it is just as important to pray for protection on the Word after the sermon as it is to pray for it before the sermon. How easy is it to get distracted from what, you know, we'll have a great service, Jesus shows up in worship, He shows up in the Word, He shows up in communion, shows up whenever He does, and then we go to pull out of here and that ding-dong who can't drive, why are you turning left? Can you not see how crowded this land is? And then we get to famous Dave's, and bless God, somebody took my booth. What in the world are they thinking? And we get distracted away from, we forget, we lose completely what God's trying to do in our lives because we're distracted. And Paul said, I don't want that to happen to you. So I'm sending Timothy, the one that I love, 
up to you to make sure that you are grounded in the faith and exhorted to live it. So, what's going to be the answer? What's going to come in the mail when he hears back from Timothy? Look there in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your face, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Folks, Paul wanted to hear good things about these people because at the end of the day, people matter. It's people that matter. Oh, I want to pastor a really big church. I want to grow a great big church. Friends, number of people that go to your church don't matter. That's not going to matter in a thousand years. People matter. Jesus didn't die for your church. He died for people. He didn't die for your, your vision. He died for people. He didn't die so that you can make sure your, your goal, your mission is accomplished. He died for people. He didn't die for your job, for your salary, for your anything. He died for people. And as soon as we lose track, as soon as we lose perspective of the reality that Jesus cares about people, we get ourselves trapped on a, on a hamster wheel that just goes round and round. We're never going to be satisfied. But Paul said, no, he died for people. And now that I know that you people are doing well, even in the middle of our distress and affliction, we are comforted because of your faith. Friends, if you're going to invest in anything in this life, invest in people because that's all that's going to matter in a thousand years. Nobody ever laid on their bed and said, oh, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Who do you want standing at the foot of your bed when you die? That's who's important. You invest in them. And friends, it's never one more project. It's never one more mission at the job. It's always a person. It's because people, people are what matter. And your spiritual knowledge, your spiritual prowess, your spiritual gifts are not going to matter in a thousand years. Nobody's going to care how well you can speak in tongues or how well you can dissect the original languages in a thousand years. All that's going to matter is who'd you bring with you. Who did you invest in? Who'd you bring with you? Because people are what matter. And friends, if you invest in people, is that enough? Pastor Kevin and I talk <clears throat> on occasion about God, why aren't you growing our church more? Why aren't, why aren't we seeing hundreds? Why aren't we seeing church plants all over this valley? That's what we want. We labor with those things. But friends, if we build a big church and we forget people, we've missed the point. And I would rather have the however many meetings I have already have scheduled for this week with people sitting across the table from them, just trying to be an encouragement, trying to bless, trying to establish them in the faith and exhort them to walk in it, than to have a big church where nobody knows their name, nobody cares. They're not seeking real life transformation. They're just looking for a number. No, we're going for change of who we are and to who he is. Because in a thousand years, if we can change a life, that will matter. 
Don and I watched this past week. We watched this t- a show on uh, Netflix entitled The Long Way Home. It's the story of uh, Jews that were liberated from concentration camps all the way from their liberation to uh, when Israel became a nation in 1948. Really interesting show. And one of the old guys on there, you know, he was one of the guys who went into Auschwitz right after it had been liberated. And he said he walked into a barracks. He was a rabbi, Jewish rabbi. He walked into a barracks and the shelves were still there and they were still full of people just laying on the shelves looking hollow-eyed at him. He said, And they just stared at each other for a little while, uh, not really knowing what to say. And then after a long while, a voice in the back, just kind of sing-song, odd-tambored, unique-tambored voice, sang out, Do you know my brother? And uh, the rabbi didn't say anything for a long time. and, And a little while later, the voice came back again. My brother went to America years ago and became a rabbi. Do you know my brother? And the rabbi said that sing-song voice was so unique. And he hit him and he said, Yes, I do know your brother. And the voice came back and said, Don't lie to me to give me false hope if you don't know him. But do you know my brother? He said, I do know your brother and I'll be right back. And he went right out of the barracks and went and got another rabbi who had come in with the liberation team brought that rabbi in there and said, is this your brother? And sure enough, it was his brother. And the rabbi said, if I never do anything else with the rest of my life, my life has been worth the living. Who are you investing in? Who are you willing to say, I will give my life if this person can just please see Jesus better? I was talking with someone this past week and they said, I want to do such a great work. I want to serve God. But I have this family situation going on. Would you be willing to give your life for that one? Just to see that one love Jesus more. Would that be a life worth having lived? And Paul looks at us and says, you people are worth it. I don't care what affliction, difficulty I'm going through. If I can just hear that you people are doing well, then I'm going to be okay. And these people's stability brought him such rejoicing. Listen to what he said over this passage. Look up in chapter 2. Pastor Kevin dealt with this a little bit last week. Chapter 2, verse 19. This is how he felt about these people. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't it even you in his presence? You are our glory and joy. Wow. Wow. You are what constitute joy for me in the presence of God. He said, you are our crown of rejoicing, our crown of boasting. There are five crowns in the New Testament that a Christian has access to. And of course, in Revelation 4, we're going to throw all of them at the feet of Jesus. But there are five of them, and this is one of them. This is one of them. It's the lives of people we've invested in that we can say, you bring me joy when you walk with Jesus. Look at what he says in 3.1, when we could bear it no longer. Look in 3.5, when I could bear it no longer. 3.8, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 3.9, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Paul is letting them know, I care about you people. I care so much that just to hear you're doing well in the middle of all of the affliction and distress, it still brings me joy. And I'm going to send Timothy, my beloved ministry companion, to see how you're doing and to establish you in the faith. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all ended with a prayer. 
In chapter 3, he ends it with the prayer here, and he prays for three things. Look at what he prays for there in verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I want to come see you. I want to come spend some time with you. Get the spare room ready. I want to come see you. It's going to take a few years, but Paul made it. I want to come see you again. Why? Look there in verse 12 at the second thing he's praying for. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. I'm praying that God will cause you to love one another and to love everybody around you all the more. Why? The third thing he's praying for. Here's the effect of it. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There's the, there's the second coming right there at the coming of our Lord Jesus why does he want them to love one another more? Because that will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Friends, Paul measured the effectiveness of his ministry by the blessing, the equipping, the challenging that he was to those around him. If they responded to the message of the gospel, he succeeded. If they were matured, he had succeeded. If they were more effective in their Christian witness and walk, he had succeeded. And if he could serve Christ by serving them, he had succeeded. Who are your Thessalonians? Who are you investing in? Who are you just serving? Who are just sharing, equipping, equipping and exhorting them to walk in the gospel? Who, who are your Thessalonians? And all of this, turn over to Acts chapter 17. All of this because... Paul just took advantage of an opportunity. When an opportunity was presented, Paul just did what Paul did. You know, here's the interesting thing. David says, well, I'm going to go out there and beat up on that Goliath guy, man. You, you, can't, you can't talk bad about the God of Israel like that. I'm going to go take care of that guy. And so Saul hears about it, King Saul, and says, well, come in here and I'll give you my helmet, I'll give you my sword, and I'll give you my armor and my shield. And you go out and face David, Goliath with all this stuff. So David gets there and he puts it on and it's all clanking around. He said, you know, this doesn't fit. This isn't me. This isn't how I work. I can't, I can't use your armor. And we look at other people and we say, well, if I could just preach like that, if I could just sing like that, if I could play the, play the guitar like Scott could, oh, holy night. If I could, if I could, if I could only. If I was only married to who they're married to, if I had the resources they have, No. David came in there and said, you know, you have good armor here, Saul, but I'm going to go out there and do what I know how to do. Can you just do what you know how to do? That's what Paul did. He just did what Paul did. He didn't try and be anybody else. He just went and did what Paul did. You know, Pastor Kevin talks about his neighbors, how he talks to his neighbors and has them over and, and wallows a beer around in his hand while he watches it get warm, you know, or whatever he does. He said he drinks a beer once a year just to prove he's free. I think that's hysterical. But... He talks to his neighbors, and you ought, to, you, ought, you ought to be involved with your neighbors. My neighbors won't talk to me. I took, I took some, we made some great jelly this year, and I took it to my long-haired freak neighbors across the road yesterday and said, hey, buddy, I'm glad to see you. Here's you some jelly. Thanks. Get lost. You know. I, so my next-door neighbors, I like them, and I'll do anything for them, and they know that. But I don't have the relationship with my neighbors that Kevin has with his neighbors. But I was walking in Woodcrafters the other day. One of our drawer slides is breaking, so I had to go get another one. And as I'm walking in, somebody hollers my name. It's one of the old guys that works in there. And 
Hadn't seen you in a while. Buddy, what are you doing? He knows my name. And there's my neighbor. Kevin doesn't know that guy. (laughs) I like that guy. (laughs) Who is it that you can... When you just do what you do, who is it that you contact? Paul came to town and he just did what he did. Look there in Acts 17.2. Paul went in, as was his custom. This is just what he did. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He just did what Paul did. He just went to the Sabbath. He went to the synagogue on Sabbath and just said, look, here's what the Bible says. He just did what he did. What is it that you do that can invest in the life of the Thessalonians that needs somebody to care whether they live or die? Because, friends, you can do something that I can't do. You have contact with people that I'll never have contact with. How can you be a blessing to them? And what is it that you just walk in and say, well, you know... I don't know if I want to preach. I'm not going to sing any solos. And the rest of the church said thank you to that. What can you do? To just say, you know, here's Jesus. The simplicity and the power of the gospel is this. Jesus is the Christ. The question every one of us have to ask ourselves is, do you know Him? Have you accepted Him as your Christ? Do you have a good philosophical understanding of it? Philosophy didn't do them a bit of good in Athens. They had all the philosophy and no church. Paul said when he went to Corinth, which is the next town down the road, he said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech, but I came to you with a demonstration of the power of the gospel in Christ. I came to you with power. I wasn't trying to out-argue in Corinth. I saw what happened with that in Athens, not much. The question is not... Do you have a good philosophical understanding of who Jesus is? The question is, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Is He your boss? Is He in charge of you? Have you allowed Him to to take away your sins? And are you following Him as your Lord? You say, well, I'm trying to do good. I'm trying trying to do as good as I can. I don't beat my wife nearly as much as I used to. Friends, it's not about how good or bad you are because you don't go to heaven because you're good and you don't go to hell because you're bad. There's a problem that every one of us had and it is that our sin had separated, according to Isaiah 59, had separated us from God. There's a wall of division between us and God and that is our sin. And there's nothing we can do to get rid of that wall. But God wanted relationship with you so much that He was willing to send Jesus to take care of your sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, who had never committed sin, He died on a cross not for anything He had done, but for my sin, for your sin. And then He looks at me and says, okay, now the problem is not sin. The only question is Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? He is the answer. He is God's answer to our sin problem, the separation that we have between us and God. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? Well, I go to church a lot, and I pray hard, and I read my Bible, and boy, we've seen some pretty cool miracles done. That doesn't matter. Jesus said, I'm going to look at some, and they're going to say, oh, we've cast out demons, we've done great miracles, all these things we've done in your name. And Jesus said, depart from me. Why? I, didn't, I never knew you. And friend, this is salvation. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only wise Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you accepted Him as your Savior?
If not, we'd be glad to stay and talk with you, visit with you, share with you what God's Word has to say about how you can become a Christian. If you'd like to know more, please talk with us. This morning we're going to be sharing in communion. We're going to be observing this ordinance that Jesus outlined for us. And it's interesting, one of the things that Paul said about communion in 1 Corinthians 11 is, he said, he said, we're going to show forth the Lord's death. So that looks backwards. How long? Until he comes. It's totally appropriate. It's totally fitting that while we're talking about behold he comes, we're also observing Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a prophetic memorial. It, it prophesies to us that Jesus is coming. We're going to be observing this all the way until Jesus comes. But it's a memorial in that it reminds us of the fact that Jesus died for me. He didn't die for anything he had done. He died for the sins of me. What is your relationship to him? As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we believe this is the Lord's table. For that reason, it's not ours to inhibit. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake with us. The way we do that is we pass out the bread and everybody takes. And when everybody has a piece of bread, we partake together. And then we do the same with the drink. But before we do that, I want to give you, want to give you time to, to just make sure of how we're doing with Jesus. Are you grounded in the Word? Are you diligently, deliberately, intentionally saying, God, I want to know your Word? Are you exhorting yourself? There's one place in here where it says exhort yourselves to follow God more closely. Are you, are, you, are you living out what you know or is it just enough for you to know? In those areas where we're willing to say, no, that's enough, could we take just a minute to say, God, I want to do better than that? That thing that he's pointing up to you, would you be willing to look at him right now and just say, Jesus, I'm really sorry about that. God, I'm really sorry I did that. I thank you that 2,000 years before I even did it, you knew I was going to do it and you still died for me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. But Father, I want to ask you to please forgive me for that. I shouldn't have done that. I want to ask you to forgive me and I ask you to become Lord of that part of my life also. As we come into this time of communion, we want to say, Father, thank you that when our problem had caused separation between us and you, that you wanted a relationship with us so much that, wow, Jesus, So, Father, thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Thank you that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Thank you. If we could have...